You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. In our series called The Story of the Bible, we will be in uh, Galatians chapter 6 or 3. We'll, we'll, we'll visit Genesis chapter 6 as well, but we'll mainly be in Galatians chapter 3. Would you take some time with me? Let's pray, and we'll head into our message today. Uh, Lord, we come before you today. Thank you for gathering us in this room. Thank you for uh, just being united in one spirit, Lord, uh, confessing uh, through our unity that, Lord, we need you and that you are great. And so, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy that picks us up, your, your grace that, that deeply, deeply saturates our life. Lord, let your grace reveal to us the depths of your love for us today. We love you, God. Be with this, be with this word. Let it speak truth to our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And so in these last two weeks, we have dove into this study about the story of the Bible. We have said that the Bible is a unified story that points us to Jesus. And so with that, we know that our Bible is not a self-help book. Our Bible is not a science book. It's not a comprehensive history book. In fact, the Bible doesn't always answer all of our questions. In fact, when you read the Bible, you may often have more questions than you do answers. The Bible isn't any of those things. Instead, the Bible is God's special revelation of himself, a united collection of books that tell of his redemptive story through the person of Jesus Christ. And so to better understand that story, we've worked ourselves through a couple different themes to understand the flow of our scripture to get greater understanding of Christ and ultimately our need for him, but also in it, it reveals a lot about who we are. And so in our first week, we talked about creation. And we said this, that all of us were made from God, through God, and for God. Every aspect of creation testifies to God. We are little images of God. We testify to God's goodness, God's grace and perfection and love. We are evidence of him. And so we said that we are an image of him, not an image as like a physical representation, but we are an image in our character and our abilities. We are not the real thing. We are a image, a reflection of God. And so we said this in the very first week that we were made to enjoy God forever, that our sole purpose in creation was to enjoy God, to love God, to trust God, because he is all that we need to live. We said we were created like a mirror at a 45-degree angle, that as we enjoy God, love him and trust him and obey him with all of our hearts, his goodness is reflected, imaged into the world at a 90-degree angle so that 
we reflect his beauty to each other and to the world around us. Last week, we said that something happened. Something deep and profound changed the course of human history forever. Humanity was deceived. We were tempted to believe that God was holding out on us. We took the one thing that God said, this is not for your good, this one flourishing boundary, and we became obsessed with it. God said, not that one tree. And God wasn't being cruel in setting that boundary. It was actually for our joy, because our most satisfying and enjoyable life will only come when we trust God above everything else. And so humanity stepped over its boundary. We turned this mirror from being satisfied as an image, a reflection of God, and in the fall and in our sin, we turned the mirror on ourselves because we saw ourselves as more beautiful than God. And in that moment, all of humanity broke. Humanity, in believing the lie, was kicked out of the garden. And the consequences that come from that are separation with God. And in the wake of it, all-out rebellion has taken place ever since. And so last week, we reminded ourselves that there is a deep trauma inside of all of us. A brokenness within our creation and ourselves that finds its beginning and its completion in the garden. In the fall, we said this last week, that we are not imperfect people that need improvement. We are sinners who need Savior. We can't fix what only God can fix. And God hinted by his grace after the fall that one day one would come to redeem us, that one day one would come to crush the serpent's head, to destroy evil, sin, and death forever, God spoke new hope into the world of the promised one. And then he said that this will not be the last word. This fall will not be the last word on creation. But humanity, in its sin, still had to deal with the consequences of turning this mirror and making it all about us and not simply enjoying God. Humankind stands looking in the mirror separated from the inexhaustible fountain of joy that is God, his perfection. We aren't whole because we are no longer walking as we are created to walk, nor are we walking with whom we are created to walk with. Because in the garden, we walked in perfection, fully satisfied with the presence of God who dwelled richly with us. We are now looking in the mirror at ourselves in darkness, in a shadow, because we chose ourselves over God. And because of that darkness, because of that shadow, we are not able to fully realize, see the devastating effects of the fall, how it has greatly deformed us and corrupted us, where we once, the picture of the Bible, the Bible gives us this picture, that where we once walked naked and unashamed, in full joy and trust in the Lord that we were unashamed, we now, in turning the mirror, we see our nakedness, we see our lacking because we were never made to be the real thing. We were always supposed to be an image. 
We were never supposed to be the main thing, which means because we are lacking and disconnected from God, looking ourselves in this mirror, in the shadow, we now know what it means to be shameful, what it means to feel guilt, what it means to be hidden, what evil is, what pain is. Why? Because our desire is no longer in making God more beautiful as we enjoy him. Our desire is that we would make ourselves more beautiful. But we weren't meant to be most beautiful. And in it, we know our lacking. We know that something profound is missing in all of us. But we live trying to convince ourselves and others that there isn't. We are obsessed with seeing ourselves as more beautiful, with seeing ourselves as enough, convincing ourselves in the world that we are better than we really are. And our scriptures speak truth to this. In Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon says that God has put eternity into our hearts, but yet he has hidden what he has done from the beginning to the end. It means that God has given us the ability to know beauty, to sense eternity, to know what it was like in the garden, to know what it will be like in eternity with him someday, yet he has blocked our understanding of his purposes, leaving us frustrated rather than fulfilled. And then all around us, we have God's creation that testifies to his beauty and his goodness which speaks of his power and his majesty, and all of it together creates a profound longing for our creator. The early Christian Augustine said this. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And so shortly after the fall, we see the full effects of sinful, shameful humanity humanity, as it turned on one another. Just three chapters after the fall in Genesis 6, we see how quickly things deteriorated. This is what happened in Genesis 6, verses 5 through 8. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God didn't regret making humankind because he made a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. God would have known from the beginnings, from the foundations of the world, what would happen in the garden and what would happen after the God. He is all-powerful and all-knowing. He could have, if he wanted to, he could have stopped it. As we visited last week, God has good reasons for everything that he does. And so God's regret and sorrow does not come with him being disappointed with what he had made. His regret shows us that God isn't unfeeling towards his creation. He is all-knowing, he is all-powerful, yet he is not a distant God in the cosmos. That our God is so near to us 
that he laments the pain of his creation. And in his power, God wipes clean from the earth his creation through a flood, only sparing Noah and his family, and then he promises to never destroy his creation by a flood again. Now, in this scripture, I want you to notice the depth of the brokenness in mankind after the fall. In Genesis 6, it says that every intention of thoughts of mankind's heart was only evil continually. Not some, not a little bit, but every intention of our thoughts were continually evil. Not an evil like we might think like, oh, we're gonna harm everybody, but evil in that our hearts no longer enjoy God as they were designed to. We aren't giving God his due. We aren't doing what we are created to do, and that is evil. And so God starts again with Noah and his family, a faithful man, as the Bible records, who trusted the Lord because creation was designed to live within the flourishing boundary of what? Of trusting God with everything that we have. And through ups and downs, we learn, and that creation learns, that it cannot fully trust God because they still trust themselves. The mirror is still on them. And that is true of Noah, and it leads into Abraham and then to a man named Moses. And it is through Moses that God sends this thing that we call his law, which is absolutely an act of grace for mankind that we will explain why later. And so this is our big idea for today, is that the law reveals, but it doesn't heal. The law reveals, but it doesn't heal When we talk about law as Christians, what we are talking about are the decrees and the commands that we find in the Old Testament where God has called his people to live in certain manners. There are different aspects of the law. There is the ceremonial law that directs God's people and how they should worship. There is the civil law that directs God's people and how they should deal with one another. And then there's the moral law or what we would call the Ten Commandments that tell humanity how they ought to live. This is what your character should be. This is who you should be on earth. And so God gives the law to the nation of Israel, to the Israelites, God's chosen people by grace. They certainly didn't earn it. He gives them the laws after they escape Egypt and what we call the Exodus, and he commands them to obey them. But they do not save them. The laws keep them, preserve them, protect them as part of his redemptive story, his plan to bring all things back to himself through Christ. And so herein lies the great question of our creator, which he never had to consider, but will consider it for our time today. How do you rescue a people who don't think they need it? How do you rescue a people who don't think they need it? Many of you have walked with people in tragic scenarios where you have watched their life spiral out of control and you have thought of that same question. How do you rescue somebody who doesn't want it? And that is the question that faces God. When we flip the mirror, when we saw ourselves more beautiful, all-out rebellion took place. Now mankind sees themselves as preeminent, more beautiful than God. 
So God, how would God go about changing that? And I think this answer, how he does it, reveals the depths of God's grace and love towards humanity. In order to redeem a creation that was lost, God revealed to them the world as it is through his law, not the world as it could be. God's law reveals the world as it was created. His laws are not a giant list of to-dos. The law reveals the world as it is. God's law is like the law of gravity. They are consistent and universal and unchanging. If you threw something in the air, it would fall because of gravity. And in the same way, God's law communicates the world as it is. And anytime you walk outside of those laws, you find yourself in the path of resistance. Nothing was designed to work outside of the way that God created it. Just as symptoms are manifestations of what lies behind them, a fever may indicate that you have an infection, pregnancy enlarges a belly, new buds show that spring is coming, the commands are more than a master to-do list that establish civil laws, they are an expression of God's underlying character and perfection which should fill our heart with awe. The reason that we shouldn't lie is because God is all truth. The reason that we shouldn't covet is because God is complete. The reason that we shouldn't betray one another is because God is perfect in faithfulness. Every command that proves our failure reveals specific, a specific beauty of the one who never does. God's law revealed the world as it is. And God gives those law to his people so that they can understand the trauma that has occurred in the fallen world. David writes in the Psalms that, Lord, your word, your commands are a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Solomon writes in the book of Proverbs that law is light. And so here we are as a creation, rejecting our God, learning to love ourselves, but we live in a world behind the mirror, staring at ourselves in a shadow world, and we cannot see. And what does our graceful God do for us? He sends the law so that we by human eyes can read for ourselves the way the world was created so we can see the mirror more accurately. We can see the holes and the flaws and the brokenness within ourselves. God is graceful through his law. He is graceful to his law. You know, when I grew up, the mall that we visited the most was Southtown Mall. I don't know if you guys remember that very much. If you're in here and you're under 35 or over 35, you know exactly what Southtown Mall is. I confess I got a lot of orange Juliuses back in the day in front of Sears, back when they were allowed to put raw egg and things and nobody complained about it. Today, if you would go back to that site, you would sort of probably see a Menards. And you would sort of forget the way it was. But if I gave you a map, a layout of that old Southtown Mall, and some images of it, you'd be able to reminisce on days past. 
Because what you lost in your memory is supplemented by what you see in the map. You can see it for your eyes. God's law is a bit like that. It reveals to us a world that we feel but can't remember. Dr. Phil Williams, not to be confused with Dr. Phil McGraw, by any chance, right? That quote would be, have you read my latest book? That would be his quote. From Dr. Phil Williams says this, the law is light, is the light that reveals how dirty the room is, not the broom that sweeps it clean. God's law lights the path so we can see how distorted creation is right now. The second way that you'd have to redeem people is to compel to them and reveal to them their utter inability. And that's exactly what God's law does. God's law reveals our brokenness. It reveals our fallenness. Paul writes it this way in Galatians 3. He says, why then the law? A great question. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it, it was put in place through angels by intermediaries. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul says that the entire law imprisoned us. It walled us into our own ability to keep the law. Over and over and over again, the law, God's word, his, his commands point out all the different ways that we have been polluted by sin and need to be cleansed, our thoughts, our actions, even the actions of others, and just even the things that happen in a normal course of life. Reading the law, you begin to wonder how it is possible for anyone to go a single day without being corrupted by sin in some ways. And that is exactly the point. You can't. The law doesn't free God's people from sin. Only Christ can do that. Instead, the law reveals to us how deeply sinful we are. And the last thing the law does gracefully for us is that the God's law reveals our consequences. You know, if you're going to redeem a people, you have to show them that there's something more beautiful and elegant, and God's law does that reveals to us the world as it is, as it was created to be. You also have to reveal someone's deep inability, their brokenness, their lacking. And then lastly, you have to show them the utter consequences of their life. The consequences of not following God's word, his law, is steep. Paul says that the wages of sin is death. Death, destruction, Damnation are the consequences for those who don't obey God's word, his law. But not just some of them, all of them. James, the brother of Jesus, writes in his letter in chapter 2, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point 
has become guilty of it all. If I fail in one thing, I have failed it all. Because God's laws reveal his perfect standard, his perfection, what it means to be righteous or right in front of him. And if we fail one thing, we have failed the entire test. There are no degrees of grace in the law. There is pass or fail. We are responsible for all of it. Yet today we bicker over what rules and what laws still need to be obeyed, which laws are antiquated, what laws don't matter anyway, and we can't see the forest for the trees. The law wasn't given as a list of to-dos. It pointed to something and someone greater. You know, there's a story out of Cambridge University in England of a student who entered a classroom one day during a test, and he asked the professor to bring him some cakes and ale. And the professor refused, and he was astonished at the audacity of the student coming in and demanding something like that. And it was at this point the student pulled out his copy of the 400-year-old Law of Cambridge, which was written in Latin and still in that day was in effect. And he turned to a page and he read it, and the student read the words, a gentleman sitting for an examination may request and require cakes and ale. This is in his law. The professor was forced to comply. And so they settled on Pepsi and a hamburger as being the moderate equivalent. Three weeks later, the student was summoned to the dean's office to face discipline. He was assessed a fine of five pounds, which evidently was the cost of the meal. Yet he was not fined for demanding cakes and ale. He was fined for his blatant disregard of another Cambridge law, a law that he failed to do because he failed to wear a sword to his examination. Days we make God's law into a little bit like that. We use the law to point out in others the way that we judge them while ignoring other aspects of the law. All the law is good and right, every bit of it. But God didn't give it to you for self-righteous purposes. The point of the law was to reveal, not to heal. It's graceful in it that it reveals humanity's sin as God displays the world it was created to be, a map to see the perfection of God and his perfect design for the world. It illuminates us in the shadow of the mirror that we can see ourselves more clearly as it reveals to us our brokenness, our shortcomings and sin, and it burdens us with the weight of consequences when we fail. Why? Because God wants to redeem his people. He wants peace with mankind. And so all the law is good and right because it is all about who God is and how he made the world. Yet for us, for humankind, it is a curse. Paul says so much because we can't do it. But if we don't do it, we're condemned. And all of that is the amazing grace of God. Because as Paul writes, why then the law? It was added because of transgression. 
until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Every aspect of the law imprisons us. Why? Why? So that when the promised one came, we might see how truly beautiful and glorious he really is. The law reveals just how deeply satisfying God's grace is through Christ. Because we cannot uphold the law, but Christ did. And that is next week. The big idea this week is the law reveals, but it doesn't heal. It is light for us to look in the mirror and see ourselves more fully, to see how the creation was distorted, how we were distorted, the holes within ourselves. It reveals the world as it was created to be, the brokenness and sin in ourselves, and it weighs us with its consequences. Also, that we would one day reject the image of ourselves in the mirror and return to God through Christ. And so as we read about the law as grace, if you've ever thought of the law as grace, grace of God towards his people, we remember that God is not unfeeling towards us, that he knows our burden and he knows our pain. And that in Christ, everything And so as we head into communion today, let's focus on the goodness of God given to us by the law that we could see ourselves, that we could truly see how beautiful Christ is. Because it is because of the risen Christ that we can join together today as a broken but hopeful community of believers who seek to love what he loved, to live what he taught, to strive to be faithful to him in this, our time and place. And so in communion, in this meal that we participate together in today, we remember Jesus, we remember his promises, the price that he paid for us, what he said, and what he did. On the night before Jesus died, he took the loaf of bread, he gave thanks and he broke it, and he said, take and eat. Whatever you do, do this, remember me. After supper, Jesus took the cup, And he poured it out saying, this is the new covenant, remember me. And today we do remember that. We remember his life, remember his love, his friendship, his teaching, his dying, his rising. Remember the day that there is a day that he will come again. And so this is our shared profession of faith in this meal we call communion, that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, Christ will come to us again. Can we say that together? Before we take this, I'll lead us. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. The body of Christ, the bread of life, is represented in the cracker. The lifeblood of Christ, the cup of blessing, is represented in the juice. These are the gifts of God for God's people, and they are great gifts that we should be thankful for. And so if you're in here today and you're of faith, you are a believer in God's family, the table is welcome and open for you. If you did not get your communion cup, just know as the music play, you are welcome to go and get one outside the doors. But let us spend some time here in these moments reflecting on God's goodness, on his grace, even in giving us the law, that we might ask forgiveness where we need it. And when you're ready, as the song plays, partake of the elements as you see fit, and join us in worship however you